22, Revelation chapter 22, as we finish the last chapter of the book of Revelation, and I think the Bible for our third time around since we've been here, so praise the Lord for that. So Revelation chapter 22, entitled it, The Grand Finale. The Grand Finale, because God is about to wrap things up here. Chapter 22 finishes the description of heaven. It also brings us to the end of the Word of God, in the sense of our study here in Revelation. He gives us his final words here, and because they're his last words, they have a greater significance. Man's earthly journey ends here. Now, as we know, uh, the road has been rough. It's been full of bumps and bruises and potholes and detours. But man enters into eternity in fellowship with God once again, which he lost back in the Garden of Eden. The Bible opens with God on the scene. In Genesis 1.1, said, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible began in a garden. It ends in a garden as well. And it ends with God on the scene and in full control of everything. He suffered, he paid a price, and he died. But the victory and the glory are his. Isaiah 53.11 says, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Let's begin now with chapter 22 with verse 1. And John begins, and he says, And he showed me, speaking of the angel, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Here John continues where he left off in chapter 21. The angel showing John the new Jerusalem. The angel here showed John a river of the water of life. Remember, there are no oceans now, as chapter 21 mentioned that to us, so there was no rain to fill a river. So the water of life isn't water as we know it, it's a symbol of eternal life. Like everything else in the New Jerusalem, the river was clear as crystal, so that the glory of God could shine through it. And it flowed down from God's throne and of the Lamb in glittering, sparkling, never-ending stream. It's pure, it's uncontaminated, it's free-flowing. And the free-flowing representing the constant flow of everlasting life from God's throne to His people. Look at verse 2 now. And in the middle of its street, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each each tree yielding its fruit every month. And in the middle of its streets, we read, and on each side of the river was the tree of life. Now, the tree of life is the heavenly opposite to the tree of life in Eden in Genesis. And this tree provides for those who are eternal. The tree of life was a familiar Jewish idea that expressed blessing. And the heavenly tree symbolizes the blessing of eternal life. John says the tree grew 12 kinds of fruit every month, emphasizing the infinite variety that will fill heaven. The word month here doesn't refer to time. Because remember, this is eternity. I don't think we're going to see any clocks in heaven, and I don't know that we'll be wearing watches in heaven. And time doesn't exist in heaven as we know it here. All right? It's a human expression of the happy condition of eternity understood in terms that we know about when we talk about time. And then John points out something that's kind of confusing. He said the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. 
Now, that sounds like a contradiction, uh, you know, because, you know, he said in, in, in uh, chapter 21, verse 4, that there's not going to be any more, there, God's going to wipe away all tears, there's not going to be any more t- uh, uh, death, sorrow, nor crying. He said there will be no more pain because those former things in the old life, they've passed away. So if that's true, why is there a need for healing? Well, the word healing here doesn't imply illness. The word translated healing is therapeia. So a better understanding might be therapeutic. In other words, life-giving or health-giving. So in other words, what is said here is symbolic and totally points to the curse that was on the human race because of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden that brought sickness, pain, and death. But the tree in the new paradise, it gives healing for the nations, which means those living there. They can enjoy eternal life without physical and spiritual needs. Verse 3, John goes on and says, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. John says there's not going to be any more curse in the new Jerusalem. This will be a radical and wonderful change compared to the way things are today. In the new Jerusalem, there won't be any curse. Back in chapter 21, verse 4, we were told that that curse would be removed. No more sorrow, pain, or death, which is the worst part of the curse. There's not going to be a temple in the New Jerusalem because, again, the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. We saw that in chapter 4 of Revelation, verse 2 through 11. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ will reign forever all through eternity. And because God will be heaven's sovereign ruler forever, his servants will serve him forever. Back in chapter 7, we read that they will serve him day and night in his temple. They're going to spend all eternity carrying out all different kinds of tasks that the infinite mind of God has in store for us. Now, you know, if you have trouble serving God here, you're going to have problems in heaven. Because it says we're going to be serving him day and night for all eternity. So I think you need to get used to the idea. And if you're not serving him, say, Lord, you know, it's time for me to start serving you. Because I'm going to one way or the other. And so, you know, as hard as it may seem to believe, the parable in Luke chapter 12, it suggests that the Lord will also serve them. Jesus said in Luke 12, 37, Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. What a blessing that's going to be. What a day that's going to be. Verse 4, John goes on and says, They shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. The redeemed in the new Jerusalem will also see God's face. Because being perfect, holy, and righteous, they will be able to see the glory of God that shines forth from His presence without being wiped out, which was impossible for fleshly men. In in 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16, we read, He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelt in an unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. When, God, when, when Moses wanted to see the glory of God and he asked God to show him his glory, 
we read that in Exodus 33, 20, God said, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. But in our holy, you know, uh, uh, perfect state, we're going to be able to see the glory of God. We're going to be able to see God. The redeemed will also be God's personal possession. It says here that his name will be on their foreheads, showing that they belong to him forever. Verse 5, there shall be no light there. They need no lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. John already told us this in chapter 21, that there wouldn't be any more darkness. There would be no nighttime, so they wouldn't need light of any kind. Why? Because the Lord God will be their light. We read in Psalm 18, 28, For you will light my lamp, the Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. The light of men, John said in John 1, 4. Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world, the light of life. So, so then John ends by saying of the saints' heavenly experience, it's going to last forever. It will never end because they will reign forever and ever. You see, that will be the keeping of Jesus' promise in Revelation 3, 21, when he said to him who overcomes I will grant him, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. Paul said, told Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.12, if we uh, endure, we shall also reign with him. Again, those who overcome. The eternal city, capital city of heaven, that is the new Jerusalem, it's going to be a place indescribable. It's going to be beyond human words unimaginable like Paul you know when he went to the the third heaven he said I heard things so astounding that they, they can't be expressed in words he said things that I saw no human is allowed to tell there's going to be unimaginable beauty things just things what we probably you know obviously never seen before from the middle of the new Jerusalem the brilliant glory of God is going to shine through the gold and the precious stones to light up the new heaven and the new earth. But the most wonderful truth of all is going to be that once sinful rebels, once Christ-rejecting people are made righteous, enjoying intimate fellowship with God in Christ, serving them and reigning with them forever in pure joy and never-ending peace or never-ending praise. And then verses 6 through 21 is the conclusion of Revelation. The reader, you know, so far has taken an amazing trip through history all the way into the eternal state. The only thing left for John to write are these inspired closing thoughts. And then starting here, all the wonderful and gracious purposes that God ordained before the world was created will have been accomplished. All the terrible destruction and shocking judgments of the tribulation period that we have read about earlier, they will have been completed. And the only ones who will remember all of those horrifying judgments of suffering and destruction and death are going to be in torment in hell, forever banished and condemned. The Lord Jesus Christ will have returned in power and glory. He will have wiped out all of his enemies. He will have set up his millennial kingdom on earth. All rebels, angels and humans alike will have been sentenced to their final eternal place of punishment in the lake of fire. And this old world as we know it, 
it will have been taken apart. And the eternal new heaven and new earth created where the king of kings will be reigning with his father for all eternity. The holy angels and the redeemed of all the ages will be living in eternal ecstasy with him in the new creation, especially in heaven's capital city, the new Jerusalem. And from his throne in the center of that majestic city, the dazzling, glowing glory of God is going to shine all throughout the recreated universe. It will be complete and permanent holiness. And that complete and permanent holiness is going to characterize all those who live in the new world and the eternal kingdom of God. And they will constantly praise and worship and serve God all through eternity. And it will be done in a setting of perfect peace and joy and total satisfaction. So as the conclusion begins, John said that the angel who spoke to him, the angel who showed him the new Jerusalem in chapter 21, said these words are faithful and true. These words are faithful and true. The angel here is confirming to John that everything that he had seen and everything that he had heard all throughout the revelation was true. The angel said the same thing earlier in chapter 21, verse 5. He said, faithful and true is also a title for the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the words of the revelation are as faithful and true as the one revealed, that who revealed them to John. The angel's words give support to a very important truth. Everything that John has seen will come to pass. It's going to come to pass. You know, what John has seen wasn't some hallucination. It wasn't some weird dream or some, you know, imaginary thing. It's not a story that's left up to anybody's personal interpretation. What John saw was an accurate description of things and persons still to come. And as we'll see later on in our chapter, in verses 18 and 19, it gives a serious warning about changing the book of Revelation in any way. Verse 6. John said, then he said to me, again, the angel, the angel said to John, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. So then John confirmed what the angel said about the truthfulness of what he said and heard. Writing that the Lord, the God of the holy prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things which must soon take place. The God who prompted his messengers, the prophets, to inspire both the Old Testament and New Testament is the same God who sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. John is basically saying that the revelation from start to finish is inspired by God. It's of no man's private interpretation. God did not ask for any man's opinion when he wrote the book of Revelation. All inspired by God. The prophecies written by earlier biblical prophets were literally fulfilled, and the ones in Revelation, they are going to be filled as well. And just like the Old Testament prophecies came to pass, just, they, just as they had been prophesied, guarantees that those still come to pass will come to pass. Every dotting of an I and every crossing of a T will come to pass. Nothing will be left out. 
All that God has promised, all that God has prophesied will has come true up to this point and everything yet future will come to pass. He has a perfect record. You know, God predicted that Israel would go into captivity and they did. God predicted the destruction of Babylon and Tyre and those cities were destroyed. God predicted the Messiah that he'd be born in Bethlehem to a virgin and killed by sinners and he was. So you see, when God says something, when God Predict future things like the rapture, the Antichrist, great tribulation period, the battle of Armageddon, the millennium, the second coming of Christ. They're all going to happen just as sure as everything else has happened. God will do exactly what he says he will do. Listen to what he said in Ezekiel 36, 36. I, the Lord, have spoken it and I will do it. No ands, ifs, or buts about it. It is going to happen. Verse 7, Jesus said, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. The important thing to remember is, is that when he says, Behold, I am coming quickly, he means rapidly. He says it again in verse 12 and, and verse 20. He says it three times here at the end. Now, the word shortly in verse 6 means quickly take place. The church has been waiting for Jesus to return since the time of the apostles, and he hasn't come yet. But when John's prophecies begin to be fulfilled, they'll happen very quickly. There won't be any delay. Verses 8 and 9. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, see that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets and of those who keep the who keep the words of uh, of this book. Worship God. Once again, it's the second time that, that, you know, John was so blown away and overwhelmed. But why? But why? But what? But what he saw and heard that he fell down to worship the angel who was speaking to him. And the angel made it very clear. John, don't do that. John, I'm a servant of God just like you are and like your brothers, the prophets, and as well as those who obey what's written in this book, worship only God, for he's the only one worthy of worship. Verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Now, in Daniel, the book of Daniel, Daniel, a prophet, was told to seal his book. Because it wasn't time yet. But John's book was an unveiling. We see that in chapter 1, verse 1. So it's not to be sealed. The message of Revelation is not to be hidden. It's a message that's to be spread and told to everyone to bring about obedience and worship. We should be telling everybody about Christ's coming. John was told not to seal up the words of Revelation. He said, you know, tell everybody right now right away about this book because Jesus is coming. And I'm sure we all have people in our lives that we love and know that, that need to know this, that still aren't saved. And so again, uh, this is saying, this is tell everybody now, right away that this, about this book because Jesus is coming. You know, from John's time to today, to today this, it needs to be told. Verse 11. He who is unjust let him be unjust still. 
He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Now, this verse doesn't mean that God does not want men to repent. This needs to be understood in light of the repeated words, I am coming quickly, in verse 7 and 12, as well as the words, for the time is at hand, in verse 10. Christ's coming is going to happen so quickly that men are not going to have a chance to change their character. So verse 11 is a serious warning that says, what you decide about Jesus will determine your character. And as a result, it will determine your destiny. Not saying yes to Jesus is saying no. You're either for him or against him. There's no neutral ground. He doesn't leave us that option. We're either for him or against him, plain and simple. Is it worth it to live a godly life? John says yes. Why? Because you'll be rewarded for it. Look at verse 12. Jesus said, and behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Jesus said, my reward is with me. He says, I know what you've gone through. I know your suffering. I know your pain. I know how you serve me. And as a servant of Christ, nothing that you ever do is forgotten by God. Nothing you ever do is done in vain. Every drop of blood in the service of God is accounted for. Every twinge of pain in the service of, uh, service of God is noted by God. There's nothing that you do for God that is not noted by God. Everything experienced in the service of Christ does not go unnoticed by the Lord. It is not in vain. Therefore, weary not in doing good. God sees it, God knows us, and we will be rewarded accordingly. At the judgment seat of Christ, believers will be judged according to their works. That is, based on the motive for why they did what they did for Christ. Did I preach the gospel for prominence and, and fame and celebrity status, or did I do it because it was a result of my relationship with Jesus Christ and I couldn't help but do anything else? We will be rewarded based on why we did what we did for Jesus Christ. And rewards will be given to those who have been faithful. And it's faithfulness that God is looking for. 1 Corinthians 4.2, Paul said, let, let, the stewards be, let the stewards of God be found faithful. That's what we'll be accountable for. Not because I was educated or brilliant or eloquent or whatever. No, was I faithful? to do what God called me to do. That's what God is looking for, faithfulness. Verse 13. Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. This is a great encouragement to anybody who wants to serve the Lord. Because whatever God starts, he'll finish. Because you see, he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And Paul said, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 14. Blessed, notice, or happy are those who do. That's an important little word there, two letters. And I always encourage people to, to underline it. Blessed are those who do his commandments, not who think about them. 
Not, God doesn't, I, 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 it's a, I would make it a good suggestion that you do them. It's a command. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Blessed or happy are those who do his commandments, who obey his commandments. James said in, John, in, in chapter 1, verse 22 of James, he says, Blessed are those who are doers of the word of God. You want blessings? Be doers. Not just hearers. Blessed are those who obey his commandments, who wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. If we really believe Jesus Christ is coming soon, we will watch. We will be faithful. We, we will be preparing for his return in obedience. This speaks of the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's in the blood that our spiritual robes are cleansed. We saw that in Revelation 7, 14. It's in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone that opens the gates of this city to the tree of life. And these are the ones, John said, who are going to be with him. Verse 15. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. The word dogs was an Eastern term of contempt for all the vile, unclean, and desirable people. They were dogs. It will be bad enough for the lost to be in torment in the lake of fire, but their torment will be made worse knowing they're outside. They will have full knowledge of everything that they might have had in heaven, but now they've lost it all forever. The torment of the rich man in hell must have, must have been, it must have been made a million times greater for him when he saw how happy Lazarus was. The damned rich man wasn't just aware of where he was, but he was aware of what he had missed. And the lost, they will be an outcast in the universe. The shame and the disgrace of their sin will haunt them all through eternity and for the rest of their eternal lives. Think of that. In hell, they will remember the chances they had to be in heaven. They will remember that day they sat in church like maybe this morning and the altar call was given and they rejected Christ and they thought, how close I was to heaven. How close a person can be to heaven and still end up in hell. Because apart from Jesus Christ, nobody will see heaven. Nobody. Jesus said no one. And that means no one. Under any circumstances. He said, I am the way. And when he said that, that eliminated every other way. Why? Because only he died upon a cross for our sins. That's why it eliminated every other way. That's what's going to make it so horrible for those who end up in hell. And making it a million times greater, that torment is because they will remember. Man, I could have been in heaven. I had a chance. The lost will be an outcast in the universe. Disgraced because of their sin, it will haunt them. They will be cut off from everything that is holy and everything that is good and everything that is decent and everything that is beautiful. They will remember ignoring and rejected the chances they had to repent. 
they'll remember their, their husband or their wife or their family members or their coworkers telling them about Jesus Christ and saying, it's okay, it's good for you, but I don't need it. They'll remember, like I said, family and old friends and coworkers they knew who were saved and who are now walking the streets of gold. But they who rejected Christ will be outside, shut out to face regret, the hopelessness, the gloom and total darkness, the misery and the pain of a lost eternity. Hell will be made infinitely more unbearable and agonizing by the thought of what has been lost by rejecting the finished work of Christ. And like many, they think, oh man, you're making this sound, you talk too much about hell. Hey, Jesus talked a lot about hell. And we need to know it's not a fun place to be. Verse 16. Jesus goes on to say, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. How we should thank God for Jesus Christ, which lies behind all of these wonderful things that are said here in the closing of this book. The root is buried in the ground where nobody can see it, but the star is in the heavens where everyone can see it. In the root and offspring of David, we have Jesus' Jewish national name. But in the bright and morning star, we have his universal name. One speaks of humility, the other of majesty and glory. And as the root of David, Jesus Christ brought David into existence. And as the offspring of David, Jesus came into this world, born a Jew from David's lineage. Both the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ is seen here. The morning star speaks of his soon arrival. Jesus Christ will come for his church like the morning star. But when he returns to judge, Malachi said this, he will be the son of righteousness in burning wrath. Because God's people look for their Lord's return, they keep their lives clean and dedicated to Him. If you truly believe and are expecting the return of Christ, you will be living like He's coming back. Looking up, knowing that our redemption is drawing nigh and that any moment the heavens could open. And God calling us home. Verse 17, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. The bride is the church. And this is a dual invitation. It's an invitation to Christ to come, you know, the, the, the church wanting him to come. And it's an invitation to sinners to come to Christ before he returns. And the Holy Spirit is doing his work in the world today, converting and convicting men. We saw that this morning as the one young man came forward. The Holy Spirit is working, bringing and convicting people and bringing them to Christ. He works through the Word of God and through the church that preaches His Word. The invitation to men is to come and is to take the water of life freely. No charge to you. Because you see, the price has already been paid over 2,000 years ago on Calvary. Jesus already paid the price. This is the invitation that goes out totally to all men everywhere. And if you're tired of drinking from the cesspools and the gutters of this world that don't quench your thirst, he's inviting you to come to the water of life. 
I love how God doesn't close the Bible by just saying, okay, well, this is the end. He calls everybody to come one last time because he's not willing that any man should perish. Verses 18 and 19. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things of which are written in this book. The warnings here don't mean that people uh, who add or take away from the Bible will be, brought, will be brought back to earth to suffer the plagues brought on by God through the tribulation period. Nobody totally understands the Bible. It is so rich, so deep, it's, it's, it's God's word. Or can they explain everything in it? And those who teach the word of God sometimes have to change their interpretations as we grow in knowledge. There may be something I, I read you know, 10, 15 years ago and I felt that this is what it was. I, many years later, I say, wow, no, this is, this is what God meant. And I have to go back and, and, and make the change. But it wasn't because I was careless, but God knows, hey, I'm just, he, he's using this, this poor tarnished vessel that you know, is always learning and you know, he's going to make mistakes. But here's the thing. You know, God sees the heart. And he knows the difference between ignorance and indifference and the difference between immaturity and rebellion. Now, it was customary in ancient days for writers to put this kind of warning that we see here at the close of their books. Because you see, the people who would copy them for public distribution, they might be tempted to, te uh, tempted to temper or tamper with the material, you know, to change things a bit. But John's warning wasn't to a writer, but to the hearer. The believer in the congregation where this book was read out loud, they were not to change anything in this book. But again, this would apply to anybody reading and studying the book today. Now, did you hear what Pope Francis was planning on doing? How many read the article? Check this out. Pope Francis is changing the Lord's Prayer. The Vatican under Pope Francis will soon be implementing a change to the Lord's Prayer, switching out the line, lead us not into temptation, for the Pope's approved, abandon us not into temptation. Which I'm not sure what, you know, what, it, what it sounds like is he's saying, God, don't abandon us that... that that it would cause us to go into temptation. Well, my God, he doesn't abandon me. He doesn't abandon. It's beyond me how the Pope is going to make Scripture better. I, 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 just, I totally have no words to, to even you know, begin to talk about that. It's a dangerous thing to tamper with God's Word. The one who defends the word of God and obeys it, they will be blessed, the Bible said here. But the one who changes it will be disciplined in some way. Revelation and all scripture is true. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. 
who has the nerve to say, it needs to be changed? I'm going to make it better. There's only one that's inspired. And that's God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And the believer will read the Bible, believe the Bible, protect the Bible, love the Bible, and obey the Bible. Because the scripture speaks truth when it describes the joys of heaven and the horrors of hell. And it should motivate sinners to pay attention to God's gracious call to salvation. Eve tampered the word of God. You know where that got us. We know how that story went. We wouldn't be reading Revelation today if she hadn't messed with God's word back then. Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Three times in the last chapter, Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. This is his last word to us. Now, it seems like we've been hearing this for a long time, and we have. Since I've been a Christian, I've been hearing it now for 45 years. To me, that seems like a long time. But Peter heard it back in his day. I want to remind you, Peter said, that in the last days, scoffers will come mocking the truth. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. People mock. Well, how many, oh, me, I've been hearing Jesus is coming for, for ages. My grandmother told me way back when I was a little boy. But you see, to Jesus, it's been only a day or two. A thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years to the Lord. At any moment, Jesus could split the sky in two and take his redeemed ones home, and he'll say, I told you I'd be back soon. And we should respond like the church does here. Amen, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Verse 21 in closing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The very, notice, notice the very last word is great, about grace. We have a God-giving, a, a, a grace-giving God. He's the grace giver. He closes his book with one last word about his grace. God's still and always amazing grace. Malachi 4.6, the Old Testament ends with a curse. The New Testament here in Revelation ends with a blessing of grace on the believers. Grace is offered to everyone. It's available to everyone. But if any man refuses the offer that's given, he will and must suffer the judgment that's declared in this book. Grace is still offered to man. Grace is the only way of saving sinners. Grace through his son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you so much for your word, God. It truly is a lamp unto our feet, and a light to our path, God. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word, the power of your word, the revelation of your word, the inspiration of your word, God. And Father, we just thank you so much that we have come to the knowledge of your word, God, to the, for the knowledge of salvation, God. And Lord, we will never, ever come to a place where we know 
all there is to know about your word, God. Your riches are so deep. You're an infinite God. But may we maybe strive to the day we're in eternity, God. To know your word, to know the God of the word, like Paul. To know him and the power of his resurrection. And he said that at the end of his life. And who knew, who knew God more intimately than maybe Paul? Who had an a, a experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus. This tells us that you can't get enough about Jesus. You can't know enough about Jesus. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, that is in a personal relationship with him, you're not born again. But we pray through the message this morning, the word spoken this morning, that you have come to know, I need Christ. I don't want to be on the outside when it comes to heaven. I want to be on the inside. I want to be in heaven with Christ for all eternity. The worship team is going to lead us in a time of worship. And if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, you want to make sure your name is written in the Lamb's book of life so when the books are opened and the names are read, there you are. And Jesus says, Father, he's one of mine. She's one of mine. And God says, enter in to my kingdom. But if your name is not found in the Lamb's book of life, the angels will take you and cast you into the lake of fire forever and ever. Total darkness and torment. As we worship, if you want to receive Christ, you get up out of your seat, you make your way towards the steps up front, I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll say it together. We'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.